Dear congregation, this life is a pilgrim life. All the people of God are traveling, as we all are, to a never-ending eternity. And the people of God have a sure destination. But often on their journey, they wonder what lies ahead, especially if the Lord has fed them, as I trust, dear child of God, he has this morning, not only under his word, but under the visible tokens of his love and of his mercy, his grace. It can be different every time, but there are times when the Lord seems so close, and it seems like heaven has dropped down just ever so near. And when you think of the way forward, the journey that lies ahead of you, you wonder, how long yet? What will I meet? How shall it all go? What will wait for me tonight or tomorrow or later this week or sometime the rest of this year? Questions may come up in our mind. This morning we heard about the prodigal who came to himself and besides knowing and feeling himself that there was bread enough and to spare and that he was perishing in want. He did. With light from on high, he said, I will arise. And he started that path backward to the Father's house. But dear child of God, for you, I know, it is not enough to rest and to live on your I wills. On your, I will arise. I will go. I will journey. As necessary and as good and as laudable as these things are. You need more. And that's where our text comes in and congregation to whomever it is that this comes. The Lord faces us with four I wills. Four I wills. As we see in the words of our text in Psalm hundred. And 32, verses 17 and 18. For I wills that greatly encourage the pilgrim on the journey ahead. Psalm 132, verse 17 and 18. There will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame but upon himself shall his crown flourish. The last one doesn't seem to be so much of an I will, but it's clear that the Lord will make the crown of Messiah to flourish, as we hope to see in our sermon. Our theme then looking to the Lord is Messiah's flourishing crown. We'll see, first of all, deliverance. Secondly, light. And thirdly, victory. Deliverance, for it says, there will I make the horn of David to bud. Light, for it says, I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. And thirdly and lastly, victory, for it says two things. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. Deliverance, light, and victory. 
O congregation, Psalm 132 was one of the 15 psalms known as Psalms of Ascent. Psalms that seem to point to the pilgrimage of pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, whether this was for the various feasts, the three feasts of the years where the pilgrims would travel towards Jerusalem, or maybe it was after the exile, as people journeyed out of that far country of exile in Assyria and Babylon towards Zion. I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who hath made the heavens and the earth. And this physical pilgrimage is a picture of the spiritual journey that we are all on. And in a special way, the people of God are on their way to the heavenly Zion, to the new Jerusalem, As Hebrews 12 says, to the innumerable company of angels, the church of the firstborn in heaven, the spirits of just men made perfect, and to God, the judge of all, and to the mediator of the New Testament, and to the blood of sprinkling which speaketh better things than that of Abel, to Mount Zion, where there is happiness and holiness entirely forevermore. The congregation, as we go upon our journey, we need so much encouragement. And here in our text, the believing church prays to the Lord, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. And this is thinking about King David, the second king of Israel, who went through much tribulation and pain that the ark of the Lord would not dwell in the wood but rather that it would be in its proper place in the tabernacle of the Most High and in the temple in Jerusalem eventually. Because you remember that the ark was captured by the Philistines and it went through a whole long journey. And for many years it wasn't in its proper place. And David, who had a heart for the Lord and for the kingdom of the Lord, he made it his prayer, he made it his labor to see that time when God's throne was there visibly displayed his footstool, the ark as his footstool was there in its proper place in Jerusalem. He gave himself no rest, it says. I will not give sleep to mine eyes nor slumber to mine eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Lo, we heard of it at Ephrata. We found it in the fields of the wood. And as you recall, they first made an attempt to bring the ark, but it failed because they didn't do it the right way. They used a cart. And that whole incident with Uzzah took place. And Israel was greatly confounded, and David as well. But he took pains until things were done the right way. And therein he was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who made the house of the Lord his care, who all his life long was was consumed with the glory of the Lord, and that the Lord would enter into his rest, that he would be there among his people. And he himself was the glory of the Lord come down. But how much tribulation he did not experience and undergo until through the cross until the the work of redemption took place, when he, through his finished work, would have 
the Lord dwelling with his people, a holy abode where he would be the temple. He would be the glory of the Lord in the midst thereof. And so David was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he prays, the Lord comes through his prophet and he speaks these promises, these assurances. And the first one in the words of our text is this, there will I make the horn of David to bud. Now, young people and children, when it speaks here of a horn, it's speaking in the first place in a figure of the horn of an animal, of a strong animal like bulls or rams. You may know about deer, male deer, and they grow these horns, and it looks impressive, and hunters especially will eye Uh, a large rack because it symbolizes something, doesn't it? It symbolizes power. And people in ancient times, they understood that as well. And so they would apply this to kings and to rulers as if they had horns. And so they would pray figuratively that their horn would butt, that they would be strong, they'd be able to ward off their enemies. And so you can read, for example, in the Song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. You can read of this sort of thing in Daniel 8 and 9 where in the visions of Daniel he sees various horns of military and political power coming up but in the end of the day there's this great horn and it's that language that is being used here. And yes, it is mentioned in connection with David but ultimately David is a type. There in Zion, in the church, I will make the horn of David to bud. Notice congregation how the Lord puts his own name there as it were. I will. You and I can't do this. We are woefully inadequate to see this happen. At best our power is but a very small horn and we often use whatever power the Lord gives us. We use it in a wrong way. But the Lord here has a magnificent promise. And children of God, here you may rest your weary soul when it comes to the battles that you are faced with in everyday life. Especially spiritual battles against sin and Satan and the world, against your three-horned enemy, if you will. I will cause the horn of David to bud. I will cause mine anointed one to have whatever strength he needs to prove himself the valiant one. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, he would one day sing about it. He sang and said, he hath raised up the horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. And so we read in Revelation about the Lamb, remarkably, 
We read about the lamb with the seven horns. Your people of God. Your deliverer is strong. He will save with an everlasting salvation. You sat at the table this morning. And oftentimes, congregation, the Lord sets his table in the presence of our enemies. What that means is that Satan is looking on. That the world is looking on. And the legions of hell are looking on. And they see one who has escaped their grasp. And you wonder, how will I face those enemies again? After the Lord's Supper, when they meet me. Some or other time later this week or even tonight, or maybe they even met you already today. Those whispers, those accusations, those temptations, those difficulties, fears within, fightings without. I will cause the horn of David to bud. And there's no end to that. It will bud, and it will blossom, and it will grow, and God will do it. That is His promise. And there, child of God, you can lay your weary head, and you can say, salvation is of the Lord. The work that He has begun shall by His grace be wholly done. It is not of him that runneth, nor of him that willeth, but of God that showeth mercy. And that is the message of the Lord's Supper as well, to carry that along. It's not in you. It is not in what your hands have done. It's not in what you've attained to in life. It's not in even in your coming to the table. It's the broken bread. It's the poured out wine as gifts of His power and of His wisdom and of His might. And He says, Child, confide in Me. Trust in me for the unknown future. I am my people's strength. There will I cause the horn of David to bud. But congregation, besides deliverance, the Lord also promises something else, and we need this just as much. And this is the second I will I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. And this lamp congregation probably refers, at least at an earthly level, to the lamp that you could find, young people and children, in the tabernacle. The golden lamp stand. Which, if you read carefully in Exodus, you find out that that lamp stand, or menorah, was kind of in the shape of a tree. It had, a, it had a, a, a trunk and then it had branches. And on the end of all those branches, there was a light. And the priest would light that at the very beginning and ensure that that would not go out. And Moses was told by the Lord to make that golden lamb stamp with knops, with little buds on those branches so that it really pictured a tree, a shining tree. 
And here the Lord promises light to his anointed and through his anointed. And many times the anointed of the Lord was actually compared to, to light. And read of this way back about Rehoboam, 1 Kings 11, verse 36, where Ahijah the prophet says to Jeroboam about Rehoboam, he says, and unto his son will I give one tribe that David my servant may have a light all way before me in Jerusalem. In other words, the king was to function so as to give brightness, radiance, as he feared the Lord, as he obeyed his word, as he spoke the word of the Lord, this would be light in the midst of the darkness all around. That's what the king was supposed to do. But how many kings did that? How many of these earthly kings down through the ages were truly light? A few of them who sought the Lord and lived in accordance to his ways, they were light with all their frailty and faults as well. But how about in the fullness of time when he came who's right, who rightfully had the kingship, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born from the loins of David, he says, and he says it far and wide, he says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life. And the same Zecharias of whom we spoke earlier, the father of John the Baptist, in his song, he weaves a lot of these things together and he says, the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. One thing, children of God, you fear the most besides sin itself is darkness, don't you? Dark times. Times when you can't see clearly. When you can't see the Lord clearly in his word. When darkness comes over your life. When the clouds come after the rain which means you hope after the rain that you can see the sunshine, but instead the clouds come once again and your soul is dreary and cast down. You need light. And so you pray for the light of his countenance to come upon you, to shine upon you, to shine the brightness of his truth and of his love over your dark life. Maybe as you sat at the table this morning, there was some light from the Lord's truth upon your path, just ever so much, to cheer your soul. Maybe you prayed for it this week. Send forth thy light and thy truth that they may lead me to thy holy hill, to thy tabernacle. But now... In post-communion, you wonder, how long is this light going to last? When shall the shadows come in upon my life once again? I know left to myself, with all the darkness that is in my soul, in the midst of this ever-darkening world, it won't be long, but it'll feel like the midnight once again. 
Oh, for light. Oh, for light. You see, when it's dark, then you can't see other things either. That's the problem. Martin Luther was once in one of his times of spiritual darkness. And uh, he feared greatly that everything was lost. He was a man whose emotions were given to fluctuation, to ups and downs. Sometimes he was in the third heaven. Other times he was cast to the very brink of hell so it felt in his own experience. There were times when he thought it was all lost. And he complained to Catherine, his wife, and said one day, he says, my hope is gone. All the lights have gone out. It feels like the Lord is dead. That's what he said. And she closed all the curtains in the house because that's what you did when someone died in their culture. You'd close all the curtains and he said, what are you doing? And and he said, she said, well, what did you just say? It felt like God was dead. And they both went outside and they realized that that was the darkness in his own mind. And that the light was still shining. And the Lord used that to make him to realize and see that that was his perception. That the Lord was the same. The Lord makes his son to rise in the just and the unjust. The Lord will be a light to his people. Whether we can see it or not. Arise, shine, for thy light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon thee. And nations shall come to thy light and princes to the brightness of thy dawning. The Lord has said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. That doesn't mean that there won't be dark days. Doesn't mean that there won't be days in which the shadows darken and the evening comes. Doesn't mean that there won't ever be a midnight in the soul. But if that comes to you, my dear believing friend, then do what Paul and Silas did at midnight. In the innermost prison, in the darkest place imaginable, beaten and bruised as they were in that moment, what did they do? They sang psalms, heavenward, because the Lord is enthroned upon the praises of his people. Many times when we take the psalms upon our lips, even if they're psalms of lament and psalms of complaint, sooner or later the Lord comes riding on these very psalms, these words of his. Could it be that in the darkest prison at midnight they sang Psalm 27 verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid when mine enemies and my foes came together against me? They stumbled and fell. How true that was for them. So even naturally, if you don't have that light, oh, that the Lord would light a candle that you would see his word. For the Lord has promised that his word is a light unto my feet, a lamp unto my feet, 
and a light unto my path. And literally in the original it says there that his word is a lamp unto my foot. Unto my foot, singular. Meaning that there are times when all you have is enough light for one step. For your foot. To put one foot in front of the other. But the Lord is true. And his word cannot fail. And here is a rock solid I will of the Lord. I will. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. It's ordained. It's decreed. It's stable, secure. It stands fast. And it will shine throughout the ages until the day dawn and all the shadows flee away. One reason, dear believers, that the Lord allows shadows and dark nights to enter into our experience is to cultivate in our hearts a longing for that day when there shall be no night there. Or like the psalmist says, when all the weary night is past, when all those successions of nights are over, and I awake with thee to view the glories that abide. Will you be there? Will you be there? My unconverted friend, one of the f- most fearful things about the eternity that awaits you, except you repent, is that the Lord calls that place outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, never ever a ray of light of which you have now so much still, because the Lord causes His light to shine upon the just and the unjust, but never a ray of light. Talk to people who have been in seclusion, the innermost prison with no light, who didn't know whether it was day or night because they never saw a ray of light or what sadness was in their soul, and that was in this world. My unconverted friend, what shall it be? To have had light here. In this sense. That the gospel was preached to you. You even. With your natural eyes. You saw in a measure. The portion. That was the people of God. You saw it in their faces. You despised it. You'd rather have the candlesticks of this world. The flickering. The tinsel of this world which will all go out in that day oh for light now light pray it then make thy light and thy truth to be my guide lest I come to that place where there's everlasting light night excuse me But congregation, besides deliverance and besides light, we have here thirdly and lastly, we have victory. And I've taken together the two last I wills of verse 18. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. 
the Lord here speaks about the shame that will be upon all the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will clothe them with shame. Who are his enemies? Well, congregation, when we think of the enemies of the Lord, so often we think of worldlings, we think of dictators, we think of those who persecute the righteous. And they certainly are the enemies of the Lord. As long as they remain as they are in sin and in rage against the Lord and against his anointed. My dear friends, I fear that so often under the cloak of Sunday dress and in places like this there are enemies of the Lord. True, you're all here and from the outside we can tell scarcely a difference between the Lord's people and those who are not the Lord's people but the Lord sees in the heart. He sees what is there truly. He sees whether there is still that natural enmity against the Lord and against his Christ, for that's how we all are born. The way we come into this world by nature is enemies of God, enemies of his grace. Well, you can be highly religious as Saul of Tarsus was. He did everything he could to keep the commands of the Lord, but down deep there was this rage against the Lord and against his anointed. And he had to work hard to keep that even, even hidden from his own sight. But it came out as he breathed out slaughter against Christians, against the people of the Lord. And therein there was the rage against the Lord and against his Christ. It was like Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? Why does Saul of Tarsus rage? He set himself against the Lord and against his Christ. And my dear unconverted friend, anyone and everyone who is outside of Christ today, in this very moment, you're an enemy of grace. Worse, you're an enemy of God. Worse, You're an enemy of Christ, the anointed of God, whom he has set forth. The parable that the Lord Jesus told on the eve of his suffering and death was this, that there was this vineyard whom the Lord of the vineyard had rented out to various laborers. They were working this vineyard on behalf of the Lord. But the Lord sent prophets to to receive some of the fruit of this vineyard. And each and every time they treated these emissaries with, with anger, with wrath. Treating them despitefully. And then what did the Lord of the vineyard say? He said, I know. I will send my only begotten son. My only son whom I love, I'll send them. I'll send him. And this is what the text says. They will reverence my son. They will respect my son. They will see in my son my heart, my love, and all that I deserve. But what rage boiled in the hearts of those husbandmen 
against the Lord and against his son. And that's the same rage that is within all of our hearts by nature. Religion, sure. Christ, no. We will not have this man to reign over us. As the Lord Jesus said on one occasion to the Pharisees, the scribes, highly religious people, he said, is your eye evil because I am good? And the answer, of course, was yes. Meaning, here was the innocent, the holy, harmless, undefiled Son of God in our nature. And they chafed. They spat upon him. They mocked him. All because he was so good. All because he was a testimony to their sins. They felt it. They raged. So often congregation, when the Lord's Supper is said in the midst of the congregation, it is declared unto the congregation that nothing in your hands you can bring. No experience, no righteousness, no works on your behalf, no religion can make you acceptable for you to come down and sit at this table. It's Christ and Christ alone. And the religious man, the religious woman inside, they're out. They're counted out. They can have all sorts of reasons to point the finger at God. Well, the Lord hasn't done this and the Lord hasn't done this. And if I were truly this, then this would have happened and that would have happened. And all that My dear friend, that's rage against the Lord. All these excuses is rage. Nothing else but rage against the Lord. I ask you this. In the great day when you stand before that great white throne, before which every single one who ever lived will stand, Will any of these excuses, will any of these words, will they matter at all? The Bible says that in that day you shall have for a thousand questions no answer. You will be speechless. You'll have nothing to say. And you, my dear friend, of all people, of all people, most miserable, Because the Sodomites, they will rise up in that day and they'll say, if only we had had sermons preached like you had. If only we had had the Lord's table celebrated in our midst and we had the overtures of salvation brought to us. We would have repented. You maintained yourself. You were Adam and stone. Harder and harder and harder with every successive year in your life. Oh, my friend, what will you do when once he appears? My text tells me what happens if you remain as you are. His enemies will I clothe with shame. I see in my mind's eye someone coming, raised in one of our circles, having gone to church every single Lord's Day of his life, in season, out of season, having donated to the church, having done many a good thing. There he stands, there she stands, before the great white throne. 
And the question is this, what thought ye of Christ? Who was my son to you? And of course the answer will be obvious to the whole world, to angels, to devils, to the whole of the world. Let him that is filthy be filthy still. In that day, my friend, in the twinkling of the eye, there's no escape. There's no calling for the mountains to cover you, to hide you from the wrath of him that sitteth upon the throne and of the Lamb. And that will be the worst thing of it all, the wrath of the Lamb. He who in life was the Savior with his arms outstretched, saying, come unto me and be saved. Come for rest. Come for water. Come for life. Come for all things are ready. Come. I proffer peace and pardon. Hear my voice today. Come, for there is bread enough and to spare. And you could maintain yourself. Someone said it like this, the lowest place in hell is reserved for those who have sat under the gospel and who have managed to maintain themselves. And of course, there is no lowest place in hell because it's a bottomless, bottomless, bottomless pit of outer darkness. And so on that day, my unconverted friend, the Lord will say, clothe him with shame. Clothe her with shame. Eternal shame. Whereas upon the people of God there shall be honor, glory, dominion. Not their own, but all for Christ's sake. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. But to you, my unconverted friend, garments of shame, eternal shame, they shall go into outer darkness, Daniel says, with shame and with reproach. Oh, my friend, I take no delight in speaking these things to you. But I must, for my sender's sake and for the honor of his name, it is true, my friend, it is true in that day when once he appears. And then your father and your mother or your children, whoever they are whom the Lord has saved by his grace, they will be of no assistance to you. None at all. You can't hide behind them. They can't give you anything in that day that can profit you. However you've lived on the earth, as the tree falls, there it shall lie. And yours will be eternal shame. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting darkness, prepared for the devil and for his angels. Oh, my friend, hear his voice today. Today. Hear him. 
He can take your garments of shame and of disgrace and reproach and sin and unrighteousness, that which you are clothed with today. He can take them and he can clothe you with the garments of salvation. Think of that. Imagine that. There you are in your shame, your misery today. Having lived all your life without the Lord, all on your own account, content to live for self and for the world, and pushed away the gospel call, pushed away your soul. How your soul will accuse you that day. What did you do for me? What did you do for me? You neglected me days without number. And your body too will accuse you. The gnawing worm that will never die. Your conscience will accuse you. All the sermons you've ever heard, they'll come back to you. Bread enough and to spare. And you will be in darkness, perishing forevermore. But my friend, today you can be clothed. You could have entered into this place with garments of shame that perhaps no one else knew about save the Lord and your own soul. The Lord can dress you with the everlasting garments of salvation because salvation is free. It's in Christ. It's full. It's free. The Lord can do it in an instant, in a moment. Bow the knee. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And soon his wrath is kindled. But cry to him today and say, Lord, my life has been one long night of misery, one long rebellious life. Lord, is there mercy for a Manasseh like me, for a sinner like me? I have these garments dark with sin, stained with the vilest of sins. If people around me knew what sins were mine, they would all with one accord point their finger at me. So you think and say, out, go away. Well, my friend, I'm a sinner like you, and everyone here is a sinner like you. But today you may be clothed with the white garments of salvation. As a Puritan once had said this, he said, if, the, if an angel came to me and said to me, sinner that I am, you can have my angelic robe of righteousness. He said, I would cast it from me and I would say, I need the bloody righteousness of Emmanuel. That alone will do for me the sinner. Keep your angelic righteousness. I must have the sinner's righteousness. Jesus alone, my righteousness. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. O congregation, do you wonder where life is going, where this world is going, where things will go this week? You sat at the table this morning. You worry, you wonder. Life is not easy. The struggle is hard. Your family, 
your children, your parents, your work, your job, the church, struggles, difficulties. We look about us in our society and we wonder if we've entered into post-Christian times. It seems like it from all that is happening in our nation. It seems like the, the, the light of even common sense in our world has gone out. And people are cloaking our society and their minds with greater and greater darkness. That's what it seems like to us. The human heart has always been the same. But my disconsolate friend, my anxious friend, don't forget these words. Upon himself shall the crown flourish. You know, in paradise, we all had a crown. You and I, in Adam, we had a crown. The Lord made us to have dominion over the beasts of the field, over the fowl of the air. But we lost that crown, didn't we, in the moment that we turned from God and turned to Satan. And you and I go through life, and we have a self-made crown. And we wear it proudly. But it's a rotting crown. It's a vain crown. It's something Satan makes us pretend that we have. The day must come in our life when we take that crown off our head and we stoop before the Lord and we say, not unto us, not unto us, but unto thee be the glory. We read in Ezekiel 21, remove the diadem and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. And it shall be no more until he come whose right it is. And I will give it to him. Congregation, this is the wonder of grace in our life when the Lord makes us to realize that the best life is not when you wear the crown. That's miserable. That's awful. That's a disaster, now and forever. The most glorious thing is when upon him the crown flourishes. And the picture there of this flourishing crown of Messiah is like in ancient times they would put these laurel crowns upon victor's head. The emperor or someone who has won a battle, they would take these branches from blossoming trees and they'd weave them together and they'd put it on the conqueror's head. And there you'd have this beautiful, glorious, verdant crown. And if they did it well enough, these, this crown would blossom. And, and maybe even buds would come and fruit would come. Though, of course, in this life it all withers away and dries and you can never do that entirely. But congregation upon him shall the crown flourish throughout endless ages. Why? Because he has life. Because he is life. And that crown that he gave, that the Father gave him in his resurrection, 
and that he wears in heaven just now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That crown is so glorious, so beautiful. There's no crown like it in all the world. It blossoms. It buds. It radiates. It's, it's like that menorah in the temple in the sense with all these branches, with all these knops, with all this light. It's flourishing. Upon himself shall the crown flourish. And that, people of God, that's all your hope. That's all your expectation, even though he makes nothing so it seems in your life to grow like David said. He wears the crown, and on his head it is dazzling. It is sparkling. It is lively. It's one of the most glorious things when the Lord by His Spirit brings us to take off this rotting crown from off our head and cast it in the dust and to stand there before Him and say, He must wear the crown. That's it. He has the crown rights. He's Lord. He's risen from the dead. He rules and reigns. And upon himself shall the crown flourish. All because in the fullness of time he was willing to wear a crown of thorns for your sake. Your child of God. His sacred head was wounded. Thorns pierced that holy head of his. He gave his head, his back, his hands, his feet, his side, all out of love. We saw it this morning, all out of love. But now in heaven, he wears a crown that shall forever flourish. And when 10,000 years are past, people of God, oh, that day's coming soon. That day's coming soon. Just a few more nights, a few more journeys, a few more sorrows, a few more sighs, and we'll see him. And we'll see his crown flourishing to all eternity. And no, what, no, no wonder whatever crown the believer may be given in eternity, all out of grace, all out of free grace, we read in Revelation that we, dear people of God, will take our crowns and cast them at his feet and say, he is worthy. He is worthy. The Lamb is worthy. What great things he has done. My unconverted friend, is he not worthy to wear the crown tonight? For you to cast your crown from off your head and say, I know not scarcely what I'm saying, but he must wear the crown. To him be the glory. Great things he has done. Amen. Gracious Lord. 
Upon thee shall the crown flourish, now and into all eternity. Forgive us for all our doubts, for all our fears, for all our anxieties and questionings, for all our wonderings, whether thou wilt wear that crown forever and forever. Thou must, thou wilt, and upon thee shall the crown flourish. Lord, we pray for thy people to help them along life's journey, to resist the temptation to have an earthly kingdom here, to secretly put back that crown upon our heads and be Lord of our own lives, to control our own destinies, to rule our own kingdoms. Help us rather to put our confidence in King Jesus alone, upon whose brow this crown will flourish to untold ages. We long, Lord, we long for the day when all shadows will flee away. But not until the lost be saved. O Lord, we pray thee that crowns would come from off heads tonight in the secret place of prayer, even now, that we would know that we are headed, some of us are headed to that place where enemies will be clothed with shame. And that we would acknowledge our shame today. And that we would be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And that we would say, thou must wear the crown. Now and forever. Dismiss us under the hands of blessing. Go with us into this evening. Bestow upon us the grace that we need to travel onward, forward, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him despised the cross and the shame thereof and is now seated at thy right hand wearing the crown of glory and honor. Lord, to thee be the honor and all out of free grace and the forgiveness of sins we ask all these mercies and blessings praying for thee to be the after preacher of thine own word in our souls and in our hearts and all for Jesus sake alone Amen